Hello and welcome to the Orb Greatness Podcast, episode 1.12, History Will Absolve Me. Last time we discussed Cuban history and Fidel Castro's career up until the time of the Moncada Barracks attack of 1953. This time we will bring both up to the landing of the grandma and then return to our subject of Che. Also, just one quick aside before we start today's episode. If you are listening to the episode on its first day of release, October 9th, 2017, this does mark the 50th anniversary of Che Guevara's death. I just thought you might be interested. Okay, on with the show. You'll Have Us by Che Guevara Let's go, ardent prophet of the dawn, along remote and unmarked paths, to liberate the green Cayman you so love. When the first shot sounds, and in virginal surprise the entire jungle awakens, there, at your side, serene combatants, you'll have us. When your voice pours out to the four winds, agrarian reform, justice, bread, and liberty, there, at your side, with identical accent, you'll have us. And when the end of the battle for the cleansing operation against the tyrant comes, there, at your side, ready for the last battle, you'll have us. And if our path is blocked by iron, we ask for a shroud of Cuban tears to cover the gorilla bones in transit to American history. Nothing more. The Moncada Barrack attack trial ended on October 5th, 1953, with its leader sent to prison. At that time, though, Fidel Castro and his band of misfits were the least of President Fajencio Batista's worries. He likely felt relieved that the popular youth leader was behind bars, but he still had a long way to go to finish consolidating his power. His coup may have been bloodless as well as largely accepted by the people and the outside world, but that does not mean it ended resistance. Students still gathered for protests against the government, and Batista's political opponents decried the breach of the democracy. The top complaint seemed to be that he had set aside the Constitution of 1940. Ironically, that constitution had been able to be put in place due to Batista's first revolt. Convenience dictated that this time, he set it aside. As they say, power corrupts. The constitution of 1940 was a great point of pride for the Cubans. The liberal constitution was supposed to lead the island to prosperity and finally break it of its chains of corruption. Instead, the man who helped install it played its death knell. A few years later, when Castro's revolution was gaining steam, there was hope that he would bring back the Constitution. However, unless Raul Castro makes an absolutely stunning declaration in the next few months, the 1940 Constitution will never return to Cuba. In the course of the decades since Batista left power, the political landscape of Cuba had changed radically. We previously discussed the corruption that grew under Presidents Ramon Grau and Carlos Prio, but corruption was not the only thing that blossomed. Nationalism and idealism characterized the new spirit of Cuba. By the time of the Moncada Barracks attack, it had been a full 19 years since the revocation of the Platt Amendment. Fidel Castro and the other youth leaders had grown up believing that Cuba was finally in control of its own destiny. Before Batista's coup, one of the things these groups rallied against was the United States' continued naval presence at Guantanamo Bay, as it was a reminder of the days under colonial rule by foreign powers. To these nationalist idealists, Batista's coup was a nightmare scenario where Cuba became like so many of the other Latin American countries. They feared that for the rest of their days, power would be passed from one Cadillo to another over and over again, 
while the general population suffered. The youth movements were not the only groups opposed to Batista. The upper classes of Cuban society largely despised Batista. One example of this includes when President Batista applied for membership to the Biltmore Yacht and Country Club. Today, the Biltmore Country Club still survives as the La Havana Club and has one of the only private beaches in Cuba. In the 1950s, it was one of the most popular, yet most exclusive, country clubs in Cuba. The club had a strictly whites-only policy, and the other members forced the club to stick to this policy and summarily reject President Batista's membership due to the fact that he was mulatto. In the 1950s, the club had only 3,940 members, and the majority of the foreign members were Americans. While race certainly played into the rejection, there are numerous examples throughout history of organizations making exceptions for powerful and respected figures. Batista was undoubtedly powerful, but certainly not respected. He was seen as a half-caste gangster, and while they could not sweep aside his dictatorship, the social elite certainly would not associate with him on a social level. Under Batista, Cuba earned the nickname of the Whorehouse of the Caribbean. Just think of all the worst stories you have heard about Las Vegas, and I can assure you that Havana in the 1950s has it beat. In fact, Las Vegas did not become the tourist destination of today until the 1960s, after Castro shut down Havana. We already discussed the United States and the Sicilian Mafia's 1946 Havana Conference last time. In the 1950s, under Batista, the strength of organized crime grew in Havana, as they knew they were safe in Batista's city. Wealth inequality grew at an exponential rate, and with it, so did prostitution. You could buy anything on the streets of Havana, and that included both female and male companionship. Bribery flourished like no other time in Cuba's history, and everyone in the government was trying to find a way to take advantage. Batista led the way as he never ceased to line his own pockets with as much cash as possible. After Batista seized power in 1952, he put down the first real revolt in the form of the Moncada Barracks attack in 1953, and then to solidify his rule, he held mock elections in 1954 so that he could officially be called a democratically elected president. He used that designation to dissolve parliament and increase his own power further. Batista had the support of the military, and despite the enmity of so many others, little could be done to unseat him. Tensions did continue to rise as university students continued to protest. That was when Batista would make what would come to be the fatal mistake of his administration. In an attempt to garner goodwill and put down those pesky protests for a time, President Batista announced that he would be issuing an amnesty in May of 1955 for the popular youth leader Fidel Castro and his brother, despite the fact that the pair had led a failed coup not even two years prior. I'm sure that Batista thought jail must have diminished Fidel's fiery spirit, but on May 15, 1955, when Fidel Castro was released from the Modelo prison, he came out unapologetic and with a promise to end Batista's despotism. A promise he would, of course, keep. During Fidel's time in jail, his movement had only grown stronger, as those who had not been in prison spread the word. His group was commonly known as the Makadistas. The Makadistas did not identify as communists. That label would not be applied to Castro's revolution until after he came to power. Fidel was very careful not to frame his struggle as a Marxist revolution. Instead, the Makadistas were a radical activist from the youth wing of the Orthodox Opposition Party. The average member would have considered themselves reformer rather than revolutionaries. They wanted Batista and the corruption out so that democracy could reign. 
This was a notion that they were willing to die for. While they did have several prominent members who were Marxists, it would be more accurate to name the majority of the group as nationalists rather than Marxists. As we briefly discussed in this past episode, Castro would hit the ground running after being released from prison. He protested and spread his message on radio shows and in interviews. The government kept close tabs on Fidel and slightly curtailed some of his activities. Yet it did not end them. Castro constantly denounced Batista to the press, and on the night of June 12, 1955, he held a secret meeting in Old Havana. There, he officially founded the 26th of July movement with an 11-member national directorate. Fidel positioned himself as the undisputed leader and retained autocratic control. From there, the political violence only got worse. Police, students, and party militants clashed with a vengeance. A return exile was murdered, and a wave of bombs rocked the capital. Fidel blamed the government for the violence, but the government blamed his brother, Raul Castro. It is unknown whether or not Raul was actually involved in the bombings, but in response to the accusations, Fidel accused the government of trying to kill him and Raul while using the bombs as a convenient excuse. The Cuban government banned Fidel from making radio broadcasts, and then, on June 16th, shut down his chief media outlet, the tabloid daily, La Calle. Fidel realized just how precarious his situation had become and ordered Raul to flee to Mexico and make way for his arrival. Raul sought asylum in the Mexican embassy and flew to Mexico City on June 24, 1955. As we discussed previously, Raul's first destination was the home of Maria Antonia, which was where he first met Che. Fidel would only remain in Cuba for another two weeks. He arrived in Mexico City on July 7th and met Che sometime that first week. Fidel was a very busy man over the next two years as he prepared for his revolution. Every day he had to meet people, recruit, arrange their training, fundraise, plan, potentially execute, or oversee an execution. During our discussion of Che, we reviewed the people Fidel hired to train his recruits and much of the training process, so we will not reiterate that now. If this is your first episode, then that discussion took place two episodes ago in episode 1.10, A War Worth Fighting. Instead, we will explore the fundraising and planning portion before we finally launch the revolution. Fidel was very aware of the fact that his revolution would require, if not outright popular support, at the very least, popular acceptance. He wrote Manifesto No. 1 to the Cuban people, and had a friend in Mexico City make 2,000 copies. He had another revolutionary smuggle the copies into Cuba with explicit instructions to distribute them on August 16, 1955, at the gravesite of Eduardo Chivas. It was the fourth anniversary of the death of Fidel's mentor. Fidel knew the power of symbolism and the importance of dates. Like-minded individuals were already planning on paying their respects to Chibos, and with the manifesto, Fidel could win their loyalty. Fidel's manifesto laid out his plans to restore democracy and justice in Cuba. It laid out his planned reforms, such as the elimination of the feudal landowning oligarchy while distributing that land to the peasants, nationalizing public services, mandatory rent decrease, a program to tackle the issues in housing, education, industrialization, and rural electricity, and in the end was basically a call to take radical measures to turn Cuba into a modern, more humane society. We'll discuss how he did in that stated goal after he sees his power. It was around this time that Fidel had started to move away from the abstract planning and instead into the practical process. Once again, symbolism helped that decision. 
he decided that the best course of action would be to land an invasion force on an isolated stretch of coastline in the southeastern part of Cuba. He would then launch his guerrilla war in the Sierra Maestra mountain range. The landing and primary stages of the revolution would occur in what was then known as the Oriente province. The Oriente province was where Fidel was born, but more importantly, it was filled with poor peasants who could be recruited into the revolution. The terrain and jungle would also make it difficult for Batista to maintain an armed presence in the area and make it nearly impossible to find a small force of determined guerrillas. It may be a rather obvious strategy, but the most important thing a guerrilla can do is simply stay alive. Each day that passes inspires hope in the allies and destroys the morale in opponents. For those reasons, the location made practical sense, but Fidel was also determined to follow in the footsteps of his lifelong idol, Jose Marte. Marte had launched his invasion to fight the Spanish for Cuban independence in the Oriente province, and Castro would launch his invasion in the same place. The poetry writes itself. The final key to victory was the province was home to Cuba's second largest city, Santiago. This city was outside the direct influence of Batista and was already home to an anti-Batista network that would prove invaluable as a source of intelligence and funds. With the plan set, all that remained was the logistics, mainly how to get to Cuba and how to arm and train the men who came with him. The answer to those questions was a simple one, money. The answer for how to get that money was a little more complex. Fidel knew that even if every single one of his revolutionaries gave every cent that they had, he would still not have enough. So, like any good politician, he planned a fundraising campaign. He would visit the Cuban emigre communities of the United States on a tour where he would play on their sympathies and get them to donate to his cause. These were the communities most likely to have money and likely would have no love for Batista. Traveling in the United States also added the benefit of putting Fidel outside the reach of Batista's cronies. I have always found it somewhat ironic that the place Fidel Castro found the most monetary support for his revolution was the United States. He had never exactly been kind in his public statements about the United States, and will of course make an enemy of the superpower very quickly after coming to power. Together with Juan Manuel Marquez, Fidel left Mexico City and traveled through Florida, New York, Philadelphia, and New Jersey. Juan Manuel Marquez was an orthodox party leader with good contacts in the United States. He was just as motivated to end the military dictatorship of Batista as Fidel. Juan Manuel was 11 years Fidel's senior, and when he was 16 years old, he had started his revolutionary life in the struggle against former Cuban President Machado. Juan Manuel watched Batista's sergeant revolt finally take the fight out of Machado and lent his services to the government as it tried to reform and make Cuba fully independent. Juan Manuel joined the Authentic Party, but as it descended into a pit of corruption during the presidency of Raymond Grau, he left the party for the Orthodox Party. At the same time as the Moncada barracks attack, Juan Manuel had actually been participating in a separate conspiracy to attack a military fortress. The plan did not come to fruition, but it is telling to, of his character that Juan Manuel was willing to go to radical methods to fight Batista's military dictatorship. Juan Manuel became friends with Fidel after Juan Manuel was given a brutal beating by some of Batista's men. Fidel had publicly denounced the attacks and then visited Juan Manuel in the hospital. Shortly after the visit, Juan Manuel joined the 26th of July movement. The addition of Juan Manuel gave the movement a prominent leader whose dedication to Cuba could not be questioned. He assisted with the fundraising campaign and would eventually be the second in command aboard the Grandma. Juan Manuel, however, would be one of the many who would die during the first two weeks after landing. 
Fidel arrived back in Mexico City just before Christmas 1955 after two months of traveling through the United States. The trip had been a major success. He raised money, helped to open patriotic clubs in several cities, received numerous applause, tied his image to that of Chivas and Marte, while also raising his media platform both in the United States and in Cuba. The mood back in Cuba was one that expected a revolution, rather than one that knew that one was possible. Fidel went as far as to vow, in 1956, we shall be free, or we will be martyrs. His return to Mexico City was cheered, and Fidel felt newly invigorated. It was almost time. With money in hand, Fidel started his plan. The training became more serious in January and February. In March, Fidel officially broke with the Orthodox Party of Cuba to form his own party, or faction if you will. He accused the Orthodox Party leadership of not supporting its members' revolutionary will. In truth, Fidel wanted free reign to proceed with his revolution, and he was not going to overthrow a dictator just to have the Orthodox Party take control. He had grander plans for his movement and for himself. April of 1956 made it clear that those plans were very time-sensitive. In that month, students back in Cuba had formed an underground militant group called the Revolutionary Directory. The directory attempted to take over a Havana radio station, but failed and lost one of its members in the gunfight. The Cuban police also uncovered a plot by army officers to overthrow Batista. Then, on the 29th of April, members of the Authentic Party attempted to emulate Castro's Moncada barracks attack by attacking the provincial Garuka barracks. But the attack failed miserably, and the group was massacred for their efforts. Batista was able to use the attack to crack down on the Authentic Party, which forced the former President Prio to flee back to Miami. If any of these attacks had succeeded in toppling Batista, then Castro's invasion would have been dead in the water. Cuba was ripe for revolution. The main question, though, was who would act quick enough to pick it. The month of May saw the leasing of Rancho San Miguel, and everything was perfectly on schedule until Fidel Castro was arrested on June 20th, 1956. Once again, Fidel was behind bars. Once again, Fidel was in a place where he could not hurt a soul. Yet, despite very open declarations, he would find himself released again. I'm not sure if it was luck, fate, skill, or what have you that continued to be on the side of Fidel. Perhaps it was just money as bribes were certainly involved, but Fidel was able to find a way out for himself and every single one of his co-conspirators. How would the world be different today if the Mexican authorities had decided to just throw away the key? A fun thing to speculate. I imagine less t-shirt sales of Che had stayed as well. We covered the imprisonment previously, so we will fast forward to July 24th when Fidel was released. As Fidel departed the jail, he did so with the promise to Mexican authorities that he would leave the country within two weeks. He would eventually leave four months later. Those four months were packed full of activity. Fidel had found a way to free Che and Garcia from jail, but that was far from his only activity. He continued fundraising, continued communicating with his various contacts both in Cuba and abroad, but this time he had to keep a lower profile so that the Mexican government would not arrest him again. He was determined to locate their means of travel, and in doing so he had two separate boat deals fall through. At the end of August, Fidel met with the leader of the Revolutionary Directory, Jose Antonio Echeverria. The two signed an agreement dubbed the Carta de Mexico. In it, the two pledged their respective movements' commitment to the struggle against Batista. It further set forth the agreement that they would advise each other of their actions and coordinate efforts once Castro landed in Cuba. It was certainly not a partnership, 
but it was an important acknowledgement of each other's movements. In September, Fidel traveled across the U.S. border to Texas for a secret meeting with former President Carlos Prio. Fidel's denunciations of Prio are well documented, so it shows just how desperate for money Fidel really was to take a meeting with a man the 26th of July movement would consider a corrupt enemy. The exact reason why Prio had decided to host the meeting, or the reason why he gave Fidel in excess of $50,000 with a promise of more to come, is a mystery. According to Yuri Paparov, a former KGB agent, it was actually the CIA's money, and they were just using Prio as a proxy to deliver the money. It is known that the CIA funneled money to the 26th of July movement in 1957 and 1958 after Castro had landed and begun to gain ground, but it is unverified whether they were behind this all-important early cash donation. If the CIA was behind the payment, then it really becomes another example of the agency creating its own enemies. If not, there are various other explanations that range from Prio thought he could control Castro by giving him money, that Prio hoped to use Castro's invasion as a distraction for his own planned coup, or Prio just wanted to see someone take down Batista, even if it wasn't himself. Whatever the reason, Castro got as much needed funds right when he needed them most. Around this same time, the final 40 recruits arrived in Mexico for their training, and Fidel whisked them off to the secret bases to get them ready as quickly as possible. In late September, Fidel finally found his boat. The grandma was a 38-foot motor yacht. The owner agreed to sell Fidel the yacht as part of a package with his riverside home in Tuxpan. It cost Fidel $40,000, but he finally had his boat. He would have preferred a larger boat, and the grandma did need a major overhaul to make it seaworthy. But at long last, Fidel had his ticket back to Cuba. On November 23, 1956, Fidel sent out the message to every last one of his recruits that it was time. Che and the other recruits were picked up and brought to Tuxpan for their departure. In the early morning hours of November 25, 1956, the revolutionaries boarded the Granma and set sail for Cuba. Some men did not arrive in time to board, others were left behind due to lack of space, but despite those setbacks, the rest were off to make history. The total of the men aboard the Grandma was 82 men. After a grueling journey that lasted two days longer than expected, the Grandma landed in Cuba on December 2nd, 1956. There on a beach in the Oriente province of Cuba, the revolutionaries fulfilled Fidel's promise. Some of them became heroes, and some of them became martyrs. The Cuban Revolution had begun. And now comes the tough part, old lady, that from which I have never run away in which I have always liked. The skies have not turned black. The constellations have not come out of their orbits, nor have there been floods or overly insolent hurricanes. The signs are good. They signal victory. But if they are mistaken, and in the end even the gods make mistakes, then I believe I can say like a poet whom you don't know, I will only take to my grave the nightmare of an unfinished song. I kiss you again, with all the love of a goodbye that resists being total. Signed, your son. That passage comes from a letter Che left behind to be forwarded to his mother after he had departed. It shows the thoughts of a man full of idealistic hope that he would find victory, while admitting that he had no idea what lay ahead. In this same letter, he would curse the fact that he did not spend more time practicing surgery so that he would be able to tend to the wounded men with more expertise. It is unknown what thoughts crossed the minds of the men stuffed into the grandma. They awaited their date with destiny. 
all realized there was a high likelihood that they could die and yet all thinking to some degree that they were the invincible ones after only two weeks less than a third of the eighty-two men who set sail in tuxpan would still be alive to regroup the journey from mexico to cuba did not go as planned the passage was only supposed to take five days but delays caused it to take seven the two extra days were quite disastrous for the invaders the invasion was initially set to coincide with planned uprisings in santiago designed to take the attention away from the coast and allow for a safe landing at the cabo cruz lighthouse just before fidel had left mexico he had sent a coded message to his urban coordinator frank paz to indicate when they would be arriving at the time paz was a week shy of his twenty-second birthday but like so many in santiago he had been inspired by the moncada barracks attack while Fidel was imprisoned, Paz had started speaking to students and poor urban workers. Santiago was the second largest city in Cuba, and without the proximity of President Batista, it was far more difficult to suppress the revolutionary spirit. After Fidel had been released from prison, Paz had pledged his support and merged his network with the 26th of July movement. As instructed, Paz had launched his armed insurrection in Santiago to coincide with the planned landing but Batista quickly sent troops to suppress the insurrection. The first burst of resistance could only last for so long, though, and instead of providing cover for the landing, it just brought a large force to the area. Paz had sent a contingent of 100 men with weapons and trucks to greet Fidel on the beach and bring them to safety. But the grandma never showed. The rebels waited through the night and the whole next day. Fidel would actually never reach the designated rendezvous point, one unfortunate thing with travel by sea is that the sea has a mind of its own and cares not for the best laid plans not only were they two days late but instead of arriving by night the landing would be made in broad daylight this had the unintended effect of making it rather difficult to find the lighthouse that was to be their guide ashore as they drew near the navigator fell overboard and the process of circling back around took the july twenty sixth of movement even more off course Perhaps shaken from his unexpected swim, the navigator missed a large sandbar on their approach, and the planned triumphant landing to start the Cuban invasion turned into something far more resembling a shipwreck. A quick assessment of the situation showed that it would be far too time-consuming to push the grandma off the barge, and they could not tell if the ship had taken any damage. So instead, the men were ordered to disembark and take the rest of the journey by foot. Che, like all the others, offloaded the ship. He squinted toward the beach in the bright sun and saw, for the first time, the island nation that would bring him fame and infamy. A successful landing was good news, but the fact was that they were far off course and they had no way of meeting up with the local resistance movement. They were left without guides and instead they would have to trek through the sandbar to the beach and then find their way to the Sierra Maestra on their own. This close to the ocean they were sitting ducks, and little did they know that Batista's men were looking for them. The Grandma Yacht Expeditionaries spent the next three days intensely marching through the humid swamps and mangroves. The men were already hungry, and the humid marches did little to quell the seasickness from the voyage. After three days the men finally reached the Agria de Pio, only to be rewarded with an ambush. Shots rang out, and the eighty-two expeditionaries either dropped dead were scattered to the wind in little groups. The ambush brought about what some call the most decisive moment in Ernesto Guevara's life. As he fled, he faced a split-second decision. He had to either save a first-aid kit 
or a box of ammunition. You could almost frame the decision as Ernesto's choice between life as Dr. Guevara or as Che Guevara. Without a second thought, Che saved the box of ammunition. He may have been a medical doctor by title, but he was a fighter through and through. The moment after choosing the box of ammunition was almost his last. A ricochet bullet hopped up and hit him in the neck. Che believed the wound to be mortal, and for several moments went into shock. He fired his rifle into the bushes and then lay still. He had only one thought on his mind as he did so. He simply pondered, what is the best way to die? He decided the best way to die would be to lay back against a tree so that he could meet death with dignity. He would of course not die in this firefight, but the two big moments of Che's first combat revealed two fundamental truths about the iconic gorilla. The first, he had the instincts of a fighter above all else. The second, he had his distinct fatalism about death. As we continue to explore the Cuban Revolution and Che's life, we will see these two truths reveal themselves over and over again. That will do it for this episode of the Order of Greatness podcast. We will leave our Cuban revolutionaries in great peril, and next time we will finally start to explore the war. So thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe so that you do not miss an episode. The Aura of Greatness podcast is available on all major podcast apps, including Apple Podcast, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, and many others. If you could take a moment and give the show a rating and review, I would greatly appreciate it. If you have any questions or would like to contact me, you can do so by emailing auraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, at TravStory. I also respond to all messages on Facebook and provide periodic updates and post pictures. So be sure to like the page at facebook.com slash auraofgreatnesspodcast. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.12, History Will Absolve Me. Until next time, thank you for listening. Cheers.